Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Goodfellas, the 1990 film about happy people doing good things. The film is directed by Martin Scorsese, (laughs) screenplay by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese. I'm joined by the Beyond Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Like, Anna called that. Like, my partner called that you were going to do it. So quick. <laughs> well, uh, deep cut Jimmy two times for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and Alex Cayetos. Hi. Uh, okay. So, before we dive into Goodfellas, uh, I'm going to announce our next episode's topic, which is Thor Ragnarok. So, if you haven't seen it or you want to see it again, you have lots of time to prepare. And if you are a patron, then you can head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon and let us know what topics, what moments, what aspects of Thor Ragnarok you want us to talk about. Uh, there is a post over on the Patreon waiting for you. So please let us know. Uh, we got lots of cool feedback for Goodfellas and suggestions of things to be looking at and thinking about while watching the movie. So we're going to bring some of those up Uh during this conversation. Also, while you're over on the Patreon, uh, our episode on Jurassic World Dominion is now available for patrons. Uh, it is it is a patron exclusive, and we all went and saw it together, and all of our thoughts are recorded in an audio file that you can listen to over on Patreon. And then also a reminder that all of these new episodes are video episodes. So now, for example, Brian isn't dressed up in a suit just for us. He's <laughs> dressed up in a suit for all of you. So Aww. if you are watching on Spotify or listening on Spotify, you can watch in the Spotify app, or you can head to the Beyond the Screenplay YouTube channel. And while you're there, feel free to like, comment, and subscribe. Fun fact, when we did Butch and Sundance, I shaved just a mustache and wore a hat. But it was just for these three. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We now didn't I get even to have. be an idiot for everyone. <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> okay, so, <clears throat> Goodfellas. Let's get into it. So, Goodfellas is a film that somehow I've seen a bunch, and I don't remember when or why, like at what point in my life I was watching this movie so much, but I know it pretty well, but I hadn't seen it in a long time and it was really fun to revisit it. And the first thing that I was just had kind of forgotten is the the pace. It's so kinetic. There's the, the classic opening scene and then the freeze frame and then we're just off to the races and it feels like it doesn't let up for the entire runtime. Obviously there are ebbs and flows, but it's just so so much momentum and we talked recently about pta and we got to talk about uh, punch trunk love and i got a lot of paul thomas anderson vibes from the way the camera was moving and the whip pans and i was like oh paul thomas anderson i bet he's seen goodfellas uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a few the times i'd wager yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah i i really like this movie It's really fun and entertaining to watch, even when things are not fun, right? It's not a fun story. There's a whole arc that goes on, but it's always compelling and feels like it's not overly judgmental of the characters or the world, but also is not shy about the bad sides of all of it. So I think it, I appreciated how great of an arc it it gives 
the character and the world and the journey that you go on as an audience. And that is, I think, sometimes missing in crime stories uh, where you can fall into glorifying it too much or having it be one note one or one way or the other. So among lots of other things, really enjoy the ride that this movie puts you on uh, and the relationship that you feel with the characters and all these things. So tons of stuff to talk about there. Um, but I want to hear from you guys. Trisha, what did you think about Goodfellas? I mean, it's Goodfellas. Like, it's just, you know, one of the most, I don't know, influential films, you know, of the last few decades. I guess it's 1990. So it's 30 years old, 30 years and change old now. It's so like the the filmmaking is so forward. It, like at, when you watch it, you know, it's like this is one of these movies that you study in film school because the filmmaking, like the directing is like has put its best foot forward. And of course, the performances are iconic. Of course, like the writing is also incredible. Um, and the story itself is fascinating, right? It's it's kind of an episodic story, but it definitely is like for a story that is essentially episodic does tell like the character through line, uh, you know, um, for Henry Hill is just equal to the Godfather or more where it's like this amazing downfall story that you can't look away from. Um, and at the same time is just so fun. It's so poppy, like, and not just because of all the pop music. Right. But like, I think of when I think of the Godfather, I think of like opera and classical music. And when I think of this, I just think of like pop music. And, um, you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Michael, when you said it like almost glamorizes, like the mob life, like the gangster life, but then it really, really, really does not. Um, and the last, you know, 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes of this are the always like the minutes of this that I remember the most when it's all just unraveling and, and going to hell so quickly. But yeah, I mean, it's like, what can you say? It's so important and yet like incredibly watchable. I don't know. I, I heard someone describe it, I think, as like a two and a half hour trailer. <laughs> it's like <laughs> for for, you know, a, a story because of how how much momentum it has and how much fun it is. And like it's so punchy and it's so good. Like anyway, Goodfellas is awesome. Um, we got some amazing questions and like things to point out, like that people ask, you know, have asked us uh, to bring up. And I can't wait to dive into those with you guys, because watching it this time with those like topics in my brain, I was noticing things I've never seen before. Um, and I'm just like, I can't wait to get into those things. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Well, Alex, what about you? Wow. Okay. So I have, I think, been on the record on this podcast as being not the biggest mafia gangster movie fan. And I think a lot of that is because I had not seen Goodfellas. <laughs> it is like a, it is a, it is a crazy, like embarrassing missing hole in my, you know, filmography films that I studied and, you know, loved as a, as a aspiring filmmaker. 
I think because of my general just like eh, about the kind of the mafia crime gangster uh, genre, never made an effort to like seek it out. It was never shown to me. And so I just kind of figured, oh, it's just another one of these. Uh, How but embarrassing, Alex. <laughs> it is embarrassing because because so many movies that did inspire me as an aspiring filmmaker, a lot of those PTA movies you mentioned, Michael, are so like it's like a direct lineage <laughs> to, to Goodfellas. Like thinking about Magnolia, like that was a revelation kind of movie for me as a young aspiring filmmaker. It's like all of it is here. <laughs> it's just the, the wonders, the kinetic energy, the the just I don't know, just the way it all flows in this almost magical, impossible way. Um, it is the type of like bravado filmmaking that, yeah, during my like high school college years, you know, these were the kind of movies that were like, hell yeah, I want to be a film director. This is awesome. Uh, so, yeah, what a joy to discover that this is one of those movies, because I think, you know, like the Irishman, you know, that's like that's that's what I thought a Scorsese like mafia movie was. And and I <laughs> did not really enjoy the Irishman, you know, sorry, <laughs> but like a lot of people thought it was like a masterpiece. And I was like, I am so bored. Um, but Goodfellas was just such a pleasure. And 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 it also it, it communicated so clearly just the the reasons why this life is appealing and why a young kid would get sucked into it and the feeling of belonging and just the the like the just the fun of having so much access to money and just whatever the hell you want like it really revels and and allows you to feel the kind of joy and thrill of of this life and I don't know. I, I just it, I just it just clicked for me in a way that so many other kind of gangster mafia genre movies just haven't. Um, and, and like in Trisha was great uh, analogy you had with, you know, the Godfather being opera. You know, so and like, yeah, I, I enjoy a really good classical, you know, experience. But man, is it really fun to have like a good pop experience of, of a genre like this? And this is just, yeah, like pure pleasure. So. Yeah, I'm on board. I understand now. I was missing this like a very important link uh, and to get the Scorsese gangster movie thing. And now I get it uh, 100%. Welcome. Very happy to hear it. I was yeah. I was bracing myself for like, ah, Alex isn't going to like this. He's going to be upset that we made him watch this again. And so I was very shocked to learn that like, wait, what? You haven't seen this? Like, Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, this is my this like this one did it for me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Great. All right, Brian. Uh, yeah, this was a movie that I saw way back um, in my college days, probably. Um, and, you know, did a good round of Scorsese movies back then and Raging Bull and Casino and Goodfellas and definitely a couple others. Taxi Driver, of course. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Goodfellas just I've seen it several times and I've seen like scenes from it so many times. My friends and I used to quote the, the kitchen scene with Mama Scorsese all, all the time. <laughs> and um, like, it's, so it's just, it's just a movie that's always been kind of with me. Um, I don't know how long it's been since I've actually sat down and watched it, but it's definitely, as you were saying, Michael movie, I've seen enough where I wasn't surprised by anything. I was like, Oh, here comes this scene. Here comes this scene. Um, and yeah, it's for two, for two and a half hour long movie. It just feels like, Really, it just takes you on a ride that gets just really fun to be on. And then the the third act is so 
crazy and frenetic that it's like rather than being like, well, it's time to wrap things up now. You're like, oh, God, this is like going all sorts of crazy right now. Um, And I remember one of my big things I noticed at the time was I was like, oh, this is like a movie based on a real story can be like this. Because I was so mm-hmm. used to right. like the sort of the biopic yeah. or the, you know, I think like Cinderella Man was out, you know, sometime shortly after I saw Goodfellas for the first time. Just this very kind of, I don't want to say dry because these movies can be exciting too. But like just sort of here's a person and they have a thing and they got to do a thing. And like the like the most crazy thing that happens in the movie is like their uncle dies or something. <laughs> like, that, like that's like the big drama. Um, and those movies can be great, obviously. Um, there have been plenty of of like very quiet dramas that are fantastic. But it was it was crazy to see Goodfellas and be like, oh, this is what a movie based on a real story can be. Uh, and Scorsese has done it since then more than once. Um, but that was one of my big takeaways. And the fact that it's kind of like a morality tale, as you touched on a little bit, I'll I'll, I'll talk about a little later. But like sort of what the movie is about stuck with me in, in like a really nice way where I wouldn't expect a movie like this to do necessarily. That almost feels like a bonus that it's like about something. What I think something that when I compare this movie to what I thought it was going to be or, or other films like identified as being in the same genre, there's often the biopic vibe of like life doesn't have a great three act structure. And so like if it's a corruption arc or kind of a downfall arc, it's like a slow kind of tedious downfall. And it's just like, yes, I see how like the error of their ways is making them more and more miserable. And here we go. And now it's over. And I just, it, it just doesn't do it for me. Like I'm not, I'm, I don't really need to sit through all that. But once again, like we're saying in this film, it just ratchets up and up and up and it gets more and more wild. And it's not a, like a lethargic slow downfall. It's like a wild downfall that is just so much fun and, and uh, intense in the way it all unravels. So I think that's another thing that I think I was expecting and I got something very different to my delight. Yeah. Well, yeah, that it because it's not telling, you know, someone's, you know, cradle to grave story. Right. It's like it's climaxing at this crazy at the most intense moment. And so it it can have that. Um, Yeah. As uh, our patron Corporal Crunch said, you know, it has a very intoxicating pace. It's a it moves and sucks you in and doesn't let you go. And it it as you're saying, Alex, like almost picks up pace the further it goes, like as yes. it goes, it goes careening to through the finish line. Um, and so much of that is in the uh, filmmaking, as we were saying, where the, the use of the camera, the dolly shots, the amazing editing, the jump cuts, the whip pans, how it all goes together uh, is just so... Yeah, it's that it's a thing where it somehow feels confident and perfect in a way that's like, well, you must have thought about this a lot, but also feels so wild and organic and spontaneous that it's like, but but how could anyone have thought of this? Like there's there's some kind of magic that's happening where like the universe is touching this the whole time and it's creating this really vivid experience. Mm hmm. Yeah, shout out to Thelma Schoonmaker. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Scorsese yeah. is like editor since way back. It was just amazing. But yeah, real quick, I just wanted to say the pacing. I was like, how does it how does it do this fast pacing without feeling 
disorienting, you know, and I think there's a lot of cool things that happen. Um, one of which is scenes that just flow into each other. So like when they're, they're threatening Maury at his store and, and De Niro is like about to like, like wrapping the phone wire around him, but then they get a call from Karen that like, she's upset about the guy across. So he has to go do this now. Right. Um, and, but then a lot of the scenes, one scene is maybe three years before the next scene, but it, it's like the next logical step. You know, when she says, she says like most, you know, you should leave someone if they, if they hand you a gun to hide, but it, it kind of turned me on. And the next scene is them getting married. And that might be two months later. It might be five years later. We don't know. Right. But like, it's the next logical thing. So it helps jump over. And then of course the voiceover, which helps the transitions when we are sort of going from two things that maybe feel a little disconnected. It's like we have the the voiceover to help us transition in. So I was just uh, appreciating the ways in which the pacing is able to, to get away with what it does without feeling like you just shut your, your brain shuts off, you know? Yeah. I mean, the voiceover is exactly what I was like, noticing this time around as being kind of like this unifying and driving thing. And it's just like, it's like so straightforward in so many ways. Like I wouldn't, you know, the character, um, Henry Hill doesn't speak with any sort of like flowery or he's not trying to be articulate or smart. Right. He's just kind of speaking his truth about things. Um, and, the fact that the voiceover is told in the past tense, I think is really interesting and, and gives it this momentum where it's like, we know that he's in the future and like looking back and he's like, the one thing I really remember about that time was that this guy and that guy were doing this thing. And it was this like amazing gig that we had. And like, um, you know, he, he's talking about it in the past tense where it's like at some point down the line. So we're kind of rushing in in a way it feels like to catch up to wherever Henry Hill is mm. in the future as we're listening to him talk where we know that there's this like future date that we're, we're going to get to. Um, and the straightforwardness of it helps too. Again, it goes back to like the sort of poppy feeling of it where it's like pop lyrics are not complex, right? Pop lyrics in, in, in popular music are, are usually very accessible down to earth, like, um, people, you know, regardless of their level of education, it doesn't require a lot of parsing. Um, and the straightforwardness, I think of the, the voiceover really echoes that. And again, like dovetails in with the music. And the thing is, there's like, I don't know, there's maybe 60 songs in this, but we just hear like the most, um, you know, sort of like driving beats or like hookiest parts of all the pop music. And so it creates almost this like, again, it, it's it's all playing together with the cutty like nature of the filmmaking and the editing. And then the like we're cutting between all of these songs. Like we sometimes literally go from like the middle of the song to the middle of like the next song. Right. Like, Especially in the finale. And, it's just the, the music. Oh, is yeah. Just it's just boom, like boom, the, changing every- everything is going by you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, where it's just like a hit parade, really, you know? And so I think that that is another thing that contributes to the pacing is like the voiceovers doing it. It's working together with, the pop music, it's working together with the editing. And, you know, I think it's fascinating. The, the, the filmmaking I read was really influenced by like French new wave filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where like a spe- specifically the, the opening of Jules and Jim, which yeah. is a wonderful movie if you haven't seen it. Um, but like, it's so interesting that Scorsese is like right at the beginning signaling to us. Like, 
I'm going to do a lot of really potentially distracting camera moves and potentially distracting editing. Like most directors are trying to hide their directing, right? Uh, Except at like key moments. Like you want to typically directors sit back and let the story just tell itself. And here there's this aggressiveness to telling the story that again creates this momentum and reinforces some of the themes, right? Where going back to the narration, he's like, I'm going to tell you a story like in this sort of broad strokes at times, um, moving quickly, really uh, plain spoken story. Um, And then the filmmaking is also like, we're just going to tell you this, like tell you this thing very, I don't know, aggressively and maybe a little bit choppy and, um, and just kind of take you through it. And so I just think it all, like any one piece of it, probably wouldn't work by itself if everything else wasn't also like in your face. Mm-hmm. I was going to say everything everywhere all at once, but <laughs> it wasn't all like just, you know, the sensory overload of, of watching this where it's like everything is driving forward at the same pace, which is, you know, paddle to the floor. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think there, there'd be a risk usually in a movie like this of fatigue or exhaustion or just, mm-hmm. it's just like too much of the same pace the whole time. And I did right. not feel that during this movie. And I'm trying to, and thinking about the elements you're, you're listing there, Trisha, you know, there's the narration that is grounding you and tying things together and kind of letting you know, like what's actually going on right now, who the players are, what they want, what they're doing. There's that. And then there is, I think the, the actual music changes like the amount of music changes does help as well. Cause if you had a single, you know, score that felt similar throughout and was kind of just like mm. putting you into like a hypnotic like days that probably would contribute to kind of a fatigue or an exhaustion. And so I think there's once again, that's why it feels like magic. There's kind of a magic mix of elements here that kept me from falling into kind of that lull that I can find myself in in a movie that's just fast pace for fast pace sake and not constructed in any kind of intentional way, but just like, we'll go faster. That'll make it more exciting. And I often get very bored during those movies because I'm actually not really tracking anymore what's happening. I'm kind of zoned out. And this movie always knew how to like keep my attention focused, place me in a scene and a time and a place. And I, I never felt disoriented more than I'd you know, I I never felt like it was a problem if I was disoriented for a moment because I was going to be picked back up shortly afterwards. Some narration would fill something in. I would remember something about this character. You know, it, it just was very easy to watch in that way, in a way that other movies, I think, that would aspire to this complexity and this pace uh, have failed <laughs> to keep me on board, on board the ride. Mm-hmm. And it, on a first viewing, I was on board this ride the entire time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, you know, obviously when a movie feels like it's fast paced start to finish, but it feels good, that means that it's not literally, as you're saying, fast paced, right? There's these ebbs and flows. And as you're calling out, Trisha, there are all these different channels that the film is using to create this pace. And so you can pull back on one and then lean on the other to to keep the narrative momentum happening, even if the filmmaking stops for a moment. The not stops, but, you know, pulls back a little bit. The moment that I had completely forgotten, well, first of all, I had forgotten um, that Karen has narration in this Mm -hmm. also, right? That his his wife does. And shout out to patron Christopher Bundenson for 
focusing me on the narration and apologies for probably butchering your name. Um, but yeah, so that Karen has a role also, I think, as this other dynamic, like we're through the narration, we are getting windows into each of their individual takes on everything. And then there's also a lot of room for us to be doing two plus two and trying to figure out what what is the relationship? What is the subtext? Who knows what at what point? And one of the moments where that, uh, or kind of a, a, a subplot that arises out of that is Henry having the affair. And then uh, Karen, like, finding out and, like, losing her mind. And I just, I love that scene where she's, like, pressing all the call buttons and yelling and yelling. It's, like, all this, like, <laughs> building and building. It's, it's this crescendo uh, as she's, like, getting angry and angrier. And then there's, like, a hard cut to she's on top. Ray Liotta with a gun yeah. to his face. Yeah. And like, that was my favorite moment. I was like, I'm so stressed in this moment, but I'm so excited and like proud of you, Karen. And like, yeah. I don't know, there's a lot yeah. of really complex, but again, that's a moment where the filmmaking is slow and it goes back to just, we're just going to cut between these two shots. There's no music. It's just this, but the dramatic tension is taut. And so it's that handoff where there's always something pulling the momentum of the story forward. Sometimes it's all at once. Sometimes one thing takes the lead, but it is this kind of beautiful orchestration that makes it all work so well. And yeah. to your point, I think there's always something pulling us and it, and they have this arsenal of tools in the toolbox and you can, you can pull at different levels. So it could be, subconscious in the music it could be in the editing it could be in just the tension of the story in this scene but that's yeah it's just man i want to watch this movie again it was so good (laughs) (laughs) i get it (laughs) this episode is brought to you by mubi a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe every day mubi premieres a new film from iconic directors to emerging auteurs there is always something new to discover With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. So as far as recommendations go, I'm going to recommend something to you as a way of recommending something to myself. Mulholland Drive is currently on Mubi, showing as part of their Cannes Film Festival takeover. I've been meeting to watch the film again, and I think I've finally been convinced thanks to Mubi. For each film they show, Mubi includes an Our Take section, where they explain why the film was picked, which often helps to frame the viewing experience. From Holland Drive, Mubi's take is as follows. Initially conceived as a TV pilot only to be transformed into a feature film, Mulholland Drive is an uncorking lightning in a bottle of Hollywood fantasies, Baroque emotions, and noir dreamscapes. David Lynch's surreal puzzle box unfolds a bewitching story of love and revenge in the city of angels. So I'm going to check it out again, and I suggest you do as well. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, you know, with with the voiceover, it's really interesting. Uh, as you were just saying, Michael, like the Karen voiceover gives it this duality where you're not just, you know, kind of like what I was saying, we talked about Breaking Bad 
uh, several months ago. I'm like, oh, now when I watch Breaking Bad, I watch it from Skyler's point of view because I'm like, like, mm-hmm. oh, the the protagonist is the one you're supposed to like watch it through their point of view. And Goodfellas does a nice job of being like, there are two sort of protagonists. Like there are two people who are going to get their um, their point of view. So that's a one of the ways that narration, the voiceover, really does something in this movie. Um, and also just like it's like we're being told a story rather than watching one. And, you know, that sort of is supposed to be against like filmmaking 101 of um, where, where you're supposed to show, don't tell. Right. Like, so it's just like, oh, you should put it together yourself. But it's like this movie is so dense and there's so much going on that just having someone tell you like this is what happened next is actually really nice. And I think, Alex, for you, what you were talking about, it helps keep you kind of oriented a little. Um and there, there are things you can communicate in a line that you can't communicate in in a few frames. Like, Polly may have moved slow, but that's only because he didn't have to move fast for anyone. Or, like, Jimmy was the kind of guy that people that, that rooted for the bad guy in movies. It's just like, okay, in one sentence, you told us everything we need to know about this character. Um, and then, I, you know, I just also just think it's fun when to, like, see what voiceover is doing in a movie, like, where it's coming from. Um, I talked about this, I think, in a Q&A where a lot of times voiceover is like someone's diary or their inner thoughts or whatever. Like Charlie Kaufman does that a lot where there's always sort of like um, there's a reason we are hearing this person speak to us. It's because we are hearing their thoughts or we are hearing like an entry in their diary. But movies like Goodfellas and High Fidelity and Annie Hall and American Beauty are all sort of like the protagonist is just breaking the fourth wall and looking into camera, sometimes literally, and just telling you a story about a thing that happened. And those are all very stylized movies, right? Like those are movies where it's like we're not trying to immerse you in the reality of this thing. We are we are telling you audience member it's like Shakespeare right like we are coming out on stage and looking into the audience and being like hello we are actors we are here to tell you a story join us for the next two hours although I will say there is there is potentially a diegetic reason for this kind of storytelling which is that they end up being witnesses for the state sure. and you know this could be their recounting of their life story to the but he FBI looks at camera at the end <laughs> like well that like yeah. the, in of the course exactly like, moment walks to the camera yeah yeah that moment is definitely that moment uh but but you know the way that he describes like you know how we got sucked into the mafia and you know it, sure. it feels like you could read it as he's also just like spilling his life story to the feds at the end and her too well yeah so i got interested in the book that this is based on mm. um partially because one of our listeners jb asked us about that but also because I'd never heard of anybody who's actually read it. (laughs) Even dudes that I know that are like Goodfellas mega fans. I'm like, Oh, so you've read it. And they're like, no, no, no. (laughs) And, and of course the, the uh, journalist who wrote the book that this is based on, you know, it's nonfiction book uh, by Nicholas Pileschi. And, you know, he co-wrote the screenplay and he also co-wrote Casino that is similar in some ways to this. So, Short of going to get my hands on the book myself, I was curious to see what I could find out about it. Um, and apparently the voiceover is lifted like you at, at times verbatim straight out of the book because the book is largely composed of interviews with Henry Hill and with his wife. Nice. So the book has this dual narrate, narration going. Um, and the book also has kind of like a playful attitude when it comes to sometimes people remember things differently. 
um, when they're being interviewed about it. And so like, it's interesting. Uh, I was reading, there's an amazing, if you, if you like me were interested in this, uh, there's a really cool article, um, the, that the AV club wrote back in 2015 about this. Um, just the, the differences between not, not like just even the textual differences, but like, what did Scorsese bring to the adaptation? Like, what are the sort of material, like feeling changes that were made and structural and, and things, changes that were made, um, in the adaptation process. But I, I really love that about the voiceover where it creates this sense of like maybe unreliable narrator, right? Like we know that we're being told something that Henry Hill and his wife are just remembering. Um, and they kind of remember things differently. We get a little bit of that in the dinner scene where they first meet. Right. And then the, the second one, he stands her up and the, he's talking about how annoyed he is. He's like, I didn't want to be there. I had to go meet Polly. I da, da, da. And then in the second one, she's like, I couldn't believe he stood me up. Um, like, not just because they're in contrast with each other, but it highlights to us this is a very um, slippery process, somebody's memory and somebody's impressions of events. And so, you know, to your point, Brian, you were saying like, it's kind of like being told a story and not shown. I agree. And I think that's good in this case, right? Like in this case, we're being told a story by somebody who is romanticizing his own past, mm-hmm. who is like glorifying his own past. I mean, God, I had it so much better then. Um, like it was beautiful. We had this operation. We just stole whatever we wanted. Like that sentiment of, hey, God, it was so good creates this feeling of like, sometimes we really believe him. We're like, yeah, that is so good. He's living his best life. Look at him. And then sometimes he's going like, oh, it was so beautiful. And we're seeing like corpses. Right. And like people, right. people bloodied and whatever. I mean, he's like, that was just Tommy's way. And you're like, <laughs> hang on. Um, but I, I love that a lot of that is apparently, you know, uh, not written in the sense of like, it isn't just scripted dialogue that Scorsese made up. There's this like veracity to it that comes from the the recorded interviews. And again, the way of speaking and and the attention to detail. Um, like I don't know the the fact that he always is like talking about like food and and little details, right? He's like, where well, I had these cutlets and I was gonna like stir the sauce. And like <laughs> right. I, I'm sure that's straight out of the book. Like it's mm, gotta yeah. be, right? And and the kind of person that fixates on that stuff however many years in the future where he's like, I had a really busy day. And I was like, I had to get back to stir the sauce. Is that, that kind of character is like a one in a million character. And it kind of provides the like heart of this thing where we get him, but also like, is he nuts? And and I just feel like that's the tension we're always holding when we're hearing him talk. Well, speaking of Henry Hill, can we talk about Ray Liotta? Cause I, I also, once again, this is another big hole in my understanding of just like everything, I guess, because I, I, I've seen Ray Ray Liotta in like latter day roles, but I hadn't seen him in this, like what I assume is kind of like the role. In my mind, the, the role for me is operation double drop. That's how I got to know. What? This is like, it's it's neck and neck. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he was, he was so captivating in this movie because he, he has, especially in the early scenes, he has both this kind of, gentler 
energy than the people around him, but also kind of a manic energy. And the way he laughs is so iconic. And just the there's just something about him that is super unique. And and once again, is like part of why I think I was so drawn in by this movie as opposed to kind of a more like stoic uh, gangster film, because I, I found him just so fascinating to watch in so many of the scenes because he is often you know, trying to be kind of like not as horrible as like a Tommy DeVito or mm-hmm. kind of be a voice of reason, you know, to a degree while murdering people. Um, but but also there's there's kind of a way in which he has like a discomfort early in the movie. And I don't know the way I read his laugh and the way he's kind of like behaving socially in some of the earlier scenes. Yeah, it just I resonated more with kind of a dimensionality to the character of like you want to belong you have made your way in here but you kind of don't belong and you're kind of uncomfortable but but putting on this face of like i belong here uh anyway just ray Liotta, rest in peace just wanted to talk about this mm-hmm. performance because i i really get so many things i get now <laughs> i actually think that ray Liotta is amazing but in terms of us like um accessing and and even sympathizing with the character. I think two things really stood out to me this time. The first is that we meet him when he's young, yeah. right? Before he's Ray Liotta. Um, we have several young actors, but especially the one that plays him as a teen, um, I think does a great job. But what we see from the character in those stages is really critical where we see that he's just eager, right? He just wants to be a part of a club. He just wants to belong. You know, he wants like financial security for his family. He wants respect. Like he comes from, you know, uh, poverty essentially, or or a sort of a tough place. And that scene where his dad, you know, kind of beats him up for not going to school. Yeah. 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 Is I think crucial. So that scene. And then the other scene that's really crucial with young Henry is the one where the guy's bleeding and he helps him, even Mm -hmm. though his boss is telling him not to help him. I was like, we get on board with this character. He's a good kid, right? Like, even though he's doing a lot of things that we disagree with, when someone's actually hurt, he has like a soft center to him. And just those couple of scenes, I feel like we'll follow that character anywhere, even where we end up following him. Yeah, there's this great sort of triptych of these three characters and how they're introduced. Um, Mm. You know, sort of, Paulie's like not a main, main character in this movie, but he's sort of he's over there too, you know, but in terms of these three characters who we spend the most time with, it's like, we start, as you're saying, Trisha, with young Henry, and it's just showing how good the mob looks, you know, one day, my, they carried my mom's groceries all the way home, it was out of respect, you know, just that sort of like, this is great, everything is great. Um, and then you introduce Jimmy, who, like, just seems like the the like best version of this type of person, right? It's like, he is making sure everyone is like looked after and feels good and feels like, you know, he's like smiling at everyone and da da da. Um, And so it's sort of like, is really setting up this, like, look at this great, everything, like everything is fantastic. And then you introduce Tommy who is sort of like, not only the wild card of, um, of, of this triptych, but is also sort of like a sign of, here's where things can go, you know, and even the way you introduce him is so, is so fun because I mean, not introduces in the very first time you meet him, but introduces in really getting to know the character. Cause you start 
with the iconic, you know, what do you, what do you mean I'm funny? What I'm like, I'm a clown? Like I amuse you? Um, into, it, but, but it's so like, good. oh, he's messing with them, right? Like it's just a joke. Into then like how he's treating the restaurant staff um, where it's like, oh no, he's like actually threatening them. He's like really could, you know, hurt someone. He was kind of messing around with Henry, but like now he really could. To then, you know, sometime later where we get like, is it a spider, you know, who he's, who he's like shooting, oh God, shooting the foot and all. Awful. Right. So it's like you get this, this like transition into like, no, no, this world looks great, but here we go. You know, and I love that these three characters are sort of, it's kind of like, Big Lebowski with the, with like Walter on one side and Donnie on the other, you know, a lot of, a lot of times we have like a three character structure where I oh, Shaun of the dead. We did a video on this. I forgot about that. We did, <laughs> where, yeah. Right. Where you it's like, it. yeah, <laughs> I've heard Broda. Um, Ed is the sort of like what, uh, what Sean doesn't want to be. And then his roommate Pete is kind of what he does want to be. And he's sort of stuck in the middle. And, uh, and yeah, I just love the way that all these characters are introduced and specifically how Henry is sort of brought into this world to like, think it is so lovely and then to kind of go too far and see what happens. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because I think how this movie also differs from something like the Godfather, that it's not about a mob boss or mob boss family. It's about like right. a foot soldier. It's about like the average person right. working for the, the person. And that's, he seems fine and like happy being that and being of service to people. So I think that is empathetic and yeah, Tommy, like I remember, obviously, you know, the clown scene, I remember being vaguely afraid of Joe Pesci, but he is such a, as you're saying, a, a wild card. It's like the quintessential, like ticking time bomb. Like, you know, this is going yeah. to go bad at some point. It's just a matter of when and how and how bad it will be. Uh, and I think that also helps in a movie where there is so much um, momentum that there are, that, that is a, a handhold that you have of like, I know, I'm tracking this subplot of Tommy getting a little bit less. I'm kidding. And a little bit more, no, I'm going to kill you. Uh, and y yeah, that kind of helps orient the viewer, I think a little bit. And, and as you're saying, dramatizes, this is the downside of all, all of this. And this is how bad it can go. At one point, they're just killing everybody. And I was like, how do you like replenish numbers fast enough? Like, it feels like you're, you're yeah. Yeah. To the point that it, it was such a catharsis when Tommy is finally oh, yeah. whacked just because mm -hmm. it, it feels like, uh, yeah, like I could rest. Like there's one less, <laughs> less like stressful thing <laughs> in this world. But you also get at that point how... Uh, yeah, emotional that would be to Jimmy and all the people around them. And so it, it does this good job of like, you understand the personal relationships. I feel like you can get at this thing of like, everybody has a friend that's like a little bit too much, but you can always tell yourself like, no, they're just, they're just kidding. It's fine. Like nothing, but like you're watching that happen and it's believable enough that there's, I think, empathy for the people around Tommy to a certain extent. So yeah, yeah just that. That dynamic, like you're talking about, Brian, of, of those characters is really interesting and layered in lots of different ways. I also feel like what they chose for that first introductory scene, you know, the, the thing that he is uh, pretending to be ticked off about is so smart because, you know, Joe Pesci's you got you can imagine this guy has short man syndrome and, and his voice is kind of funny. And so, like, it says so much right up front about the 
type of person this is that they're very touchy about being called funny in any way. You can just already imagine an entire history of being funny, maybe like at your expense, um, being called funny. And and I just thought that was, was a brilliant move to kind of it immediately put me in the headspace of like, oh, yeah, this guy who's very, very touchy about certain things because yeah, he is kind of a funny looking guy. He is a funny sounding guy. He's a kind of a short guy. And there's a lot of just baggage that comes with that. And it immediately reads in that scene. Well, and, you know, obviously, famously, there's the story that Joe Pesci like improvised most of that or rather that they improvised it in rehearsal and right. then they recorded all their rehearsal and then like Scorsese took it and like wrote it into the script basically like took the best moments of the improv and and put it in the script which is a, a smart and cool way to work if you mm-hmm. if you have the actors of this like caliber that can tap into characters like this and it also is like another example of how this movie is just kind of like the perfect storm of a lot of things coming together because you know, the I mentioned the narration with Henry Hill is lifted straight out of the book. And so, like, the writing didn't need to be done on that level. Obviously, it needed to be, like, cut and adapted and trimmed. But some of the most memorable, like, you know, the first line in the movie, like, you know, I've always wanted to be a gangster, like, as far back as I can remember. Like, that line is straight out of the book. Um, and a lot of the other ones are, too, that are iconic in the voiceover. But one thing the book can't and doesn't do is dialogue. And so being able to flesh the characters out and like make them embodied, um, my understanding is that the character that uh, De Niro is playing was actually a lot more like Tommy and like they were kind of more similar in real life, but they they chose to like make a, the most clear departure you could ever make where you have somebody like De Niro's character that's really quiet and calculating, right? And is never like worked up, doesn't ever seem like he's going to lose his temper, even when he's like unhappy or do something like incredibly rash, but will definitely have somebody else kill you <laughs> like down the line maybe, but you'll never know when or how, right? As opposed to like Joe Pesci's character, which is just this loose cannon who thinks it, who does things without thinking. Um, and so I think it's such a smart adaptation, um, like both in the way that those characters are crafted in their own dialogue, which was created sort of whole cloth for this movie and in differentiating them from each other. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Real quick, uh, before we get into lessons, um, we had a few people on Patreon ask us about how Goodfellas compares to Casino, uh, Abel, and a few other people. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about this, and it's like, I I love both movies. They're both, for anyone who doesn't know, they're both uh, based on true stories, written by Nicholas Pileggi, uh, and have a dual narration they both have de niro and joe pesci uh, who provide the the dual voiceover in casino um and i love casino and uh, but i was thinking like why didn't casino 
sort of stick the way the Goodfellas did. It's like it was a mm. very well regarded movie and and most people who have seen it love it, but it doesn't have the like it wasn't a cultural phenomenon the way the Goodfellas was, you know. And I was thinking like, well, for one, it came second, right? So there's a little bit of diminishing returns where it's like, well, we we did it again. It's like, oh yeah, but but we we, we already saw the first one. Um but I was also thinking about the sort of origin story thing that we have here with Henry and Goodfellas is like it sort of is like a superhero movie, right? Where it's like he goes from being this kid into being something. Casino, it actually reminded me of Godfather 2 a lot where it starts with a character who is already at the top. And then it's like a three-hour drama about like things that happen. And and when I say drama, it does focus a lot more kind of like Godfather 2 on there's like political stuff and then there's tension with – his wife and custody over the kids and all this kind of thing, right? Where it's like, we're focusing more on a little bit more of an adult kind of theme than the sort of frenetic good fellas. Here we go. And because of that, I think there are fewer like one-liners in casino. There, there's not quite as many, just like, it's not as like fun of a movie. There are definitely like those fun Scorsese moments, but by design, it's a movie that's, that's more of a little bit more of a character study. Um, but uh, but I was also thinking about like the domestic setting, which, mm. you know, I, again, with Breaking Bad, I talked about how it's so easy for us to to connect to a character who's like lives in a house in the neighborhood with their family. But then over here, they're doing this thing. And I, I think Sopranos is basically Goodfellas, the series, right? It's sort of like, yeah. like, here's a character who has a family and all this kind of stuff. But he's also doing this stuff and he goes to a therapist, like all these normal day to day things. But then there's this over here. Casino, again, it's like we start with a character at the top of their game. Um, so they are there's this bigness to to the movie in a way that Goodfellas, you're always kind of coming back to like, oh, his, you know, his daughter and his like this thing is happening. And like they have to go, you know, pick someone up because they, they've got a problem, whatever. Like there's a little bit of that more domestic my kind hat. of nature to it. What's that? Yeah, my, I need my lucky hat. Um, <laughs> and uh, and Casino is also long. It's it's three hours. It's like three hours and more slowly paced than Goodfellas. Um, so it sort of has that a little bit more of a godfathery type operatic feel to it, right? Where it's like you're going on this very long ride that sort of feels methodical and moody and you're going to be glad you did by the end. But Goodfellas is like, we're taking you on this like fun music video movie trailer kind of ride. So yeah, I think Casino is a great movie, but I was just thinking those might be some of the reasons why it didn't quite kind of click into the collective consciousness uh, the way that, that Goodfellas did. That definitely resonates with my my very fuzzy memory of Casino, which is mm. I think I, I probably saw it around the time I also watched Goodfellas and I ended up watching Goodfellas a lot and Casino. I was like, I think I liked it. but uh, uh. So, yeah, the, I want to watch it again, though, to to have a more precise mm -hmm. understanding of, as, of all these elements, like you're saying. And I love the inward facing like insular quality to the story world in Goodfellas where like a lot of mafia movies are about like outward facing problems where it's like we're our little tight-knit community and we're fighting with this other crime family or we're like fighting with the feds or we're like doing this big yeah. job over here with these outsiders and Goodfellas is not about any of that like there's no like federal agent that's tracking them the whole time there's no other like head of another crime family that they're fighting with it really is just about this like super insular world 
And it's like own little problems where it's like really just about Jimmy and Tommy and like they whack this guy they're not supposed to whack and they're hoping no one's going to find out about it. Um, Meanwhile, they're doing a bunch of like little jobs, right? They're like pulling off a a couple little heists, some of which are most of which are not even really on screen or (laughs) like turn out to be a thing. Um, But again, it really is about focused on these like relationships and it's mostly about the relationship in a lot of ways between Henry and Karen. Um, And I was struck this time when I was listening to Karen's narration about like, this all seemed really normal. Like, I don't know what to tell you. We didn't, there were no outsiders. We never talked to anybody from the outside. This was just normal. Um, And how you see those Christmas parties and it's like, it's everybody in there is a part of the same organization. And so it's about in so many ways, just a community and like, it turns out to be a community that's unsustainable, but the community aspect of it, I think is another reason that this, the story world of this movie is so iconic because it isn't about like a big battle, right? It doesn't feel like it's about this army over here versus that army. It's just about this little community mm-hmm. and like a little bit of like inside drama. Um, and also all the good stuff that comes with being a part of a community, right? Like there are a couple scenes where, the girls like uh, Henry's Henry and Karen's girls are in a dramatic situation in that scene you mentioned where Karen is like hitting the buzzer on the thing and the girls are just standing there and she's holding their hand. But it it is more played for comedy. It doesn't feel like those girls are going to end up being collateral damage in a very real sense, right? Contrasted with the Godfather where they're screaming babies all the time and we're like worried that the kids are going to pay the pay the price, right? That's more about like family, like, I don't know, the the sort of rottenness at the heart of that family. But the family here doesn't necessarily feel rotten. The community is. But again, it's this sort of closed loop that also you can see how it's brainwashing the characters in a way where it's like they've never known that this is not normal, that if. Joe Pesci's girlfriend says, like, if I even look at another guy, he'll kill me. The other girl's like, that's great. great. (laughs) (laughs) It's creating, like, its own, you know, sort of closed delusion. But at the same time, I think it's a really compelling, like, uh, vision of what it would be to be a part of a community like this. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Alex, you were saying how easy it was for you to sort of follow the story. And I think that that is part of it. As you were saying, Trisha, it's just like a focused character story where we are, we're never far away from, uh, from Henry, especially, but even if we are far away from him, we're focused on two or three other characters, whereas casino. And as we were saying with Godfather part two, there, there becomes this like bigness to the world, which is cool in some ways, but also is like, oh, we sent, you know, Johnny No-Nos and Jimmy the Hat to like go d- to Miami to like this thing. And then now we're in like Miami for 10 minutes with these, you know, actors 13 to 19 from the call sheet. And we're like, wait, who, who, is who are these guys? What are they doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then eventually we're back to the main story. But Goodfellas feels like it is like a very focused character story that happens to be set in this like huge, crazy world. Cool. Well, why don't we go into lessons and and say what lessons we're going to take away from Goodfellas. Alex, do you want to start us off? Yeah, we're just kind of talking about the feeling of community. And I think it just gets to an honesty uh, this movie has. And and so I was reading up on 
um, Wikipedia. I always do that <laughs> for our podcast. Uh, and Scorsese talking about this movie, he actually is the one that said the two and a half hour trailer line, Trisha. Um, mm. he, he said, you know, this was when he read the book, he said it was the most honest portrayal of gangsters he'd ever read. And he said that he wanted to begin the movie like a gunshot and have it get faster from there, almost like a two and a half hour trailer. I think it's the only way you can get the, you can really get the sense of exhilaration of the lifestyle and get a sense of why people are attracted to it. And I think that is what I love about this movie is that it it fully uses the form. It's not doing style for no reason. It is using all the tools that it's at disposal to tell me why this world exists, why it feels good to be in it, uh, why it like kind of just keeps going on. Because I, I do understand in that world, it would feel great to just feel like protected and given kind of this like upper class status in a community where you begin in a lower class way and to have just money available at all times. You just you know, buy yourself something nice, honey, just pull out the stack of hundreds any given moment. You, you, you really feel like the abundance and the kind of safety and security of a community. And, and, but then you also feel the exhilaration and the, like the fun of uh, this kind of wild world that, uh, that you can tell that Henry is so attracted to. And so I feel like yeah, the movie both gives me, the understanding of just like the deeper community, like sense of place and security that people get. And also how genuinely fun a person like Henry or Tommy or, or Jimmy find this lifestyle and how it's so exciting compared to the boring, you know, the working stiffs. And, and, and so I think just it's a movie where form meets function in all the best ways. And, and it and it finally gave me my entry into the gangster <laughs> genre that I needed all this time. Nice. So. And I wonder how much it, how much like meta work this movie even does for other gangster films. Because as you're saying, this this film right. yeah. lets mm-hmm. you understand the appeal of it and why someone would right. get wrapped up into it. That I think then translates maybe subconsciously even for a lot of people when they watch a different gangster movie. Because it's like, well, no, I now I get why you want to be in it, and this is a different yeah. take on that tale kind of a thing. It feels like a starter pack that I was missing. <laughs> and then like, I've, I've, been, I've been watching like the, like things assuming you've like started with the starter pack. Right. Yeah. You started <laughs> with the peaty scotch. Yeah. <laughs> I need a nice, like smooth, sweet bourbon to start yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll riff off that a little bit for my lesson. Cause I was thinking about glorification, which is, you know, this, um, Movies like this, a lot of times are sort of, it's like, oh, it's glorifying this lifestyle. And I'm like, okay, but what is the movie actually saying about this lifestyle, right? And and I feel like some movies are vague about it. And I think that's when it can be tricky. I think Wolf of Wall Street is kind of maybe one of those movies where I'm like, look, I don't watch Wolf of Wall Street and be like, I want to live this lifestyle. This looks horrible, right? But at the same time... Uh, that movie sort of ends on like a little bit of a heroic note. Like, look, he's, he's starting, he's starting over again. Right. And ever since the very first time I watched Goodfellas, I had the image of Tommy at the very end of the movie when Henry goes out to get his paper and we see Tommy firing a gun and then he goes back and Henry goes back in the house. I was just like, Oh, I get it. I get what you're saying. Right. It's like, no matter what, even if he is like safe in the witness protection, like, Henry is always going to have this entire his entire life basically hanging over his head. He's always going to be looking out the front door for the guy with the gun. Right. Um, So it's like 
I love that these movies are able to show the fun of the world and the attractiveness of the world. But then it's always the question of like, but then where are we going from there? And with this lifestyle, it's like, look, for choosing this lifestyle right off the bat, the characters are in a bad way, right? Like they're already in danger. Um, but then on top of it, it's this sort of morality tale of not just the lifestyle you lead, but also the choices that Henry makes, which is I'm going to, I'm going to try to get everything. So it becomes sort of this Greek tragedy, right? Where it's like, I, I'm going to try to be unfaithful and hope that my normal relationship is fine. Well, it's not going to be, I'm going to try to like be above the law and not be in danger. I'm going to try to like go behind the other good fellas back and get away with it. Right. And it's like, no, no, you, for, first of all, don't be, don't live this lifestyle <laughs> at all. Second of all, if you do, you're going to have to play it really safely and not like try to get ahead. I'm going to try to do this much Coke and act like <laughs> yeah, a normal right. human being. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, no, no. Yeah. But like Casino and uh, Scarface and this movie, they're all sort of like someone who enters into a lifestyle they probably shouldn't be in, but also then tries to go too far and tries to take it too far. And I feel like I like that. I think this movie is a really good example of how you can have all of the fun, right? You can show all the like, this was, isn't this great? We we went through the place and they put a table right in front of the stage and we got Henny Youngman in our movie because Scorsese like just gets these like random cameos in his movies of like 50s people. Um, and, uh, but then also we are going to make it pretty clear by the end of it, hopefully very clear to you viewer that by the end of the movie, we're not saying, go do that. Go, go live this lifestyle. It's going to be great. Mm. Well, I think part of it, too, is we see him in his kind of coked out, you know, the later stages. And it's like he's not having fun really anymore. He's like really strung out. He's really stressed. He's always paranoid. Like Mm -hmm. like it's the results of everything that came before is not like the cushy millionaire lifestyle that he was aiming for. It's this paranoid, freaked out, coked out uh, existence, which is not a, like, a way to live. Um, and so I, I think the movie is yeah, very clear in that you, know, you can have this like meteoric rise and have so much fun, but it, there's going to be a huge fall if you go about it in this, you know, yeah, trying to have it all way, the, yeah. cheating the system, trying to have it all. It's always going to fall down at some point. Well, that the movie you know, he's paranoid and not having fun and the movie's playing it for that. Like it's signaling to the audience, like he is paranoid and unhappy. It's not playing it for comedy or some other like things. Right. It's clearly conveying earnestly earlier in the movie, as we're saying, this is what was great about having this community. And by the end, it's clearly saying this is what was really bad. I mean, it it doesn't feel like a heavy handed or preachy message, right? It it feels like a portrayal of this is the logical conclusion of playing the game the way that you're playing it, unfortunately. Right. And there is a cost, basically, like you chose to pay that cost. You decided it was a cost you were willing to pay or at least risk paying. Um, You decided it was an amount of money you were willing to push into the middle of the table. But someone's going to cash in on it eventually and you're going to end up in a house in Tucson or wherever he is at the end. And to your point, Michael, about the playing things for laughs, I think that was maybe what I I couldn't process with with Wolf of Wall Street. I think like it's it's late in the movie when there's a kind of very extended scene 
of Leo DiCaprio like crawling to a car extremely uh-huh. slowly because he's like <laughs> has too many quaaludes, and it and it just it just felt like that the movie had all these set pieces where right I, I wasn't feeling the momentum that this movie gave of like life spinning out of control. It was more just like here's some funny set pieces of like wow this guy has a crazy life and look how absurd it's gotten. But it didn't I didn't have the like anxiety and the paranoia and the spinning out that I felt in Goodfellas, and so. Yeah, there's a there's a clear arc, like there's a clear rise and fall and you feel it in this movie. And I think in movies where that feels less clear, then you have that weird, ambiguous feeling of like, oh, so maybe it was just kind of like really fun to have all this like sex and drugs. And it's kind of funny when you have too many drugs and like now it's over. Um, And and I think Goodfellas did not make me feel that way. I felt very much the. You know, when Henry was having a good time and when he was not having a good time and, mm-hmm. and and the entire ending is like a train wreck just getting faster and faster and worse and worse. Trisha, what's your lesson? Sure. So I um, fell in love with Karen again when I was watching this movie. Uh, Lorraine Bracco is amazing. And but I, I just for some reason I had forgotten about how much agency she actually has. Like there definitely is the construction of her character is fascinating. And and I think, you know, the, uh, wife, romantic partner counterpart, um, in a lot of gangster movies gets really lost or ends up feeling like sort of flattened in one note. And even when we were talking about the Godfather, uh, trilogy, we kind of highlighted moments where we felt like Kay, was really there and felt like she was really nuanced and like a full person and other moments when we felt like she was kind of not um like she just totally got steamrolled or slightly forgotten or whatever um i think that that's an interesting study in and of itself but i i really love karen in this because from the moment we like see her she is willing to fight back and like when he stands her up the second date And she like goes and yells at him on the street in front of a bunch of people. Um, But even just including her voiceover. Um, And again, going back to Nicholas Pelleggi's book and the fact that he interviewed her, you know, extensively, uh, as well as interviewing Henry Hill. It's like, this is a smart way uh, to approach this because it's the person who was closest to what was going on. Um, And you highlighted some of the other amazing moments of her in this movie where she like is, you know, on top of him with a gun straight in his face and is like, baby, wake up. Um, (laughs) Love it. Uh, But there are so many other uh, amazing moments, um, you know, aside from even just like the pushing the buttons and like calling the superintendent and the mistress's apartment building and all of this stuff. Um, She creates this other through line you know we talked about this as like in so many ways just a domestic drama or sort of this like insular drama about a family um you know a family that in this case includes like jimmy and tommy but like definitely includes karen and i think it's really interesting the scene where they tell him he has to go back to karen right like everyone knows he's got this mistress and like you gotta go back to karen you've got kids and like this you gotta do the right thing um it It creates this sense of like often side characters and in movies like this, particularly women that are supporting characters, um, often do not feel like they have the ability to affect the plot. 
And that's what I mean when I say agency yeah. in a film. <laughs> if, you, if a character has agency in a movie, it means they can do something to change the plot. And in this case, Karen has a lot of agency. She does a lot that has the ability to affect the plot. And that is a good thing. It keeps us guessing, even to the point where he comes back from jail. And in his voiceover, he's, he, we hear like, oh, I'm going to sell all the coke that the cops didn't find. And then immediately we see him like searching, searching, searching for it. And she's like, they were going to find it. I flushed it down the toilet. What do you want from me? Um, the image of her actually flushing the coke down the toilet is like, it's the one, it's like, it's burned into my mind. And just her panicked breathing, um, the way that she runs up that hallway with the bag that like, she's amazing. <laughs> she's so good. Like I loved watching her in every scene of this movie. She's so good. And she has her own arc too, right? Mm -hmm. Where we see at the beginning, she's like, I knew this wasn't right. I didn't think it was a life that I could lead, but I kind of liked it. You know, we see her like, you know, eagerly like taking money that he gives her and just letting the <laughs> feds in or, or the cops in or whatever right. with the search warrant. And there, there's so much of this where we're just with Karen um, and imagining what it would be like to be reaping the benefits of something that you know is like wrong, maybe, or dangerous, maybe, and or could harm you and your family. But it has its appeal, right? It's a reminder that supporting characters can both be a source of conflict and a source of like, in this case, complicity. You know, movies about organized crime involve a lot of people and a lot of characters um, and not overlooking characters just because the camera is not often focused on them. I love that this movie doesn't do that. It really gives Karen a lot of room. It's a good word for a supporting character of this kind. Like even all the way down to the very, very, very end where she's like, I don't think I can go into witness protection. And he's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, that's up to you. But like, I'm not going to go without you guys. Like by the end, it seems like she's super complicit in everything and we can kind of see how he breaks her down right there's like a switch that's made at a certain point where she's like i'm gonna burn everything down if you're if you're not faithful and then eventually it's like well you're out of jail and now you're bringing in all this money from all of this drug trade right. and like um, we're back on top we have all this money again and like it's kind of all <laughs> a wreck or could so easily be a wreck. And she's just like, I'm going to help this babysitter hide these drugs in this baby's carrier. <laughs> she's very complicit by the end. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But again, that's a process that we see because there's enough time spent with the yes. character. It yes. doesn't feel jarring. It feels like this is a, a three dimensional person that we've seen enough that we can track with her. And the, yeah, as, as you're saying from the beginning, it's not like she's tricked into this life. Like she, nope. we see her make a choice. He asks her to hide the gun. Yeah. So yeah, it, I agree. She's one of my favorite parts. Like her and then Joe Pesci, like for different reasons, are just mm -hmm. like so much. Yeah, so much of this movie. Um, awesome. Yeah. So my lesson is just you know, there's perhaps the most famous Steadicam shot of all time in this movie. Uh, which we have not mentioned. Which we have not mentioned. <laughs> uh, which is fine. Everyone knows it. But it was fun to watch it again and imagine a world in which having a Steadicam shot like this was a big deal. 
and mm-hmm. a very difficult, uncommon thing to pull off. And there's so many ways of stabilizing cameras now and cameras are so small and light and digital and all these things. So it just kind of put me back into the this mindset of like, right, what what can you do with a steady cam? What can you do with this tool or that tool? And that shot is so great, not just because it's cool and you start outside and you go through and you end up inside, but it's doing so much story work and character psychology work in bringing you seamlessly from this outside to this inside. You're seeing how all the doors open for Henry and he's getting to escort Lorraine Bracco, like through Karen, Karen yeah. thank you. Karen. Uh, through this, everyone is, you know, you turn a corner, there's someone saying, hey, or thank you. Like you're really getting the experience of what it's like to be this person. And as we were talking about, like the the benefits of all of it are made very clear. Yeah, just thank you so much to Larry McConkey, the camera operator of that scene, who apparently choreographed most of that himself um, and, like, worked with Ray Liotta. I read it. There's a really cool BBC article about that, but, like, he kind of took over a lot of the blocking of that himself and, like, actually helped Ray Liotta, like, what if you stopped here and, like, helped Lorraine Bracco be like, can we, like, stop? Let's give a line to this guy. Let's make sure that we're pausing because I have to move the camera in this way. He's an early uh, city cam op. There was another movie we talked about recently. Now I can't remember what, what, what it was that, where I, I brought up the idea of oneers that uh, don't feel like oneers because you're not ever just like waiting for the shot to continue. Like, like every long contact. take, maybe contact. Yeah. 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 Every, every steady cam shot in this movie was so packed with information and those character moments that I never, I mean, I could, I could feel that it was an amazing steady cam shot, but I wasn't like, okay, let's get to like the next scene. Cause this is just like going, it was just so packed with life and information and momentum and fun. And it's just, yeah, that's part of the joy of a master filmmaker like this, where you're doing these bravado shots, but once again, you, if you're not looking for it, you might miss it because you are just engaged with, with the content and not just looking at the form that is empty of content. Everything is firing. It's not just one thing at a time. Yeah. So, yeah, love that shot. Love all the wonders in this movie. Well, yeah, and it just made me uh, think about, you know, looking at the tools in your toolbox what if you spent some time imagining, you know, it was a big deal that you got to use this tool and you could only use it once. What would you use it for? And that that can kind of focus your brain on like, this is what this tool is really good for or really good for in my story. That was the thing that came to my mind while watching it. Also uh, realizing, oh, duh, like Boogie Nights opening show. Oh, I bet <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson has seen Goodfellas before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's, that's my key lesson. That's what my takeaway. <laughs> what have you guys been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? I watched a documentary on HBO Max called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage. Um, wow. Yeah. Which oh, I is, know what that is. Uh, yeah. As, as you can imagine, it's a documentary about the craziness of that weekend and the $4 bottles of water and the fires that closed it all out and all the, you know, not great behavior that happened in the middle. Um, and it was especially interesting to me because I was there. 
Um, so I think I mentioned of way course back you in, our, were. in our train spotting episode. I think that was the first time oh I saw my God. train spotting. Yeah. And it was really interesting to watch a documentary with like footage of something that you were at 20 years ago. Um, there was some stuff that felt like, oh, they just pulled that straight out of my memory and other stuff where I'm like, wait, that happened or like that, that was good. Like that stage was existed. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating because it's sort of, it targets in a way that it should this specific angry young white male uh, person uh, who I'm happy to say I was not this person like like this was the guy who was there to see Limp Biscuit and Corn and Kid Rock. And, <laughs> you know, they lived in like a pretty nice house. But for some reason, they were really mad at the world for whatever. <laughs> I was like, I was there to see Jewel and Alanis Morissette and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And um, and then, you know, there's a little bit of generalizing general generalization going on uh, in the doc where they're like, Oh, someone played the Star Spangled Banner and someone did the Country Joe McDonald chant and someone and they brought out um, Robbie Krieger from the doors. No one understood what any of that stuff was. I was like, I did. I, I understood all that stuff. I appreciated all that stuff. But I'm like, yes, I was not the the majority there. Like I sort of felt that like that, you know, that thing, whatever that thing was. And it led to some 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 craziness during the thing, which culminated in fires and fences going down and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's really interesting the way that they frame it all and the way they talk about everything. Um, there were, yeah, just all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, I, I will say, even though I was not the person that that they're targeting, there, there was a moment where <laughs> there was a group of people playing around in the mud and I joined them and we became sort of like a mud tribe for a while. <laughs> and I stood up on a platform and started like giving them orders. Um, <laughs> so we, huh. we rushed the stage. Jamiroquai was playing, nothing against Jamiroquai, but we threw mud on the stage. And when I say we rushed the stage, I mean... 200,000 people parted because there was just like 40 muddy people running through. So you were not one of the guys? I was not or one of the angry Limp Bizkit people. I was one of the mud people and I was I was leading them to to throw mud at things because it sounded fun. Cross section of Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this this was just fun, right? So then we ran back and they were like looking at me for direction. And I was like, I don't know. Let's rush the MTV stage. So we part the Red Sea of people again to the other side. And Carson Daly is on the MTV stage. And we all proceed to throw mud at Carson Daly and he ducks out of the way. And while I am not in this documentary, that moment is in the documentary. <laughs> you see Carson Daly ducking out of the way of a bunch of mud being thrown at him. So... Woodstock 99, peace, love, and rage. HBO oh Max. Oh, my God. Enjoy. <laughs> the life Brian has led. This is the most Brian yeah. story I've ever heard. <laughs> we have had different lives. Um, wow. That is amazing. I, need I was to young. This um, clip at some point. Oh, my God. Wow. Uh, okay, cool. Trisha, what do you got? What? You were going to make me follow that? <laughs> sure. So I, uh, at a different festival, 
I saw uh, at Sundance back in January, uh, I saw a movie called Cha Cha Real Smooth. um, And it is coming out on Apple TV Plus here in the next like week or so. So it'll be out hopefully by the time this episode gets to you. Um, It's the new Cooper Rafe movie. uh, And um, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, It was a highlight of Sundance this year for me. And it's a comedy, like a sort of dramedy uh, about a, uh, just a dude who decides that he's going to become like a party starter at bar mitzvahs, like kind of a DJ, but like really his job is to like make sure everybody's having fun. So he like leads dancing and, um, and then, um, you know, he falls in love with Dakota Johnson and, um, anyway, it, it it's just a, I don't know. It's a comedy that really worked for me. It's really charming. It's got sort of a quirky, sense of humor to it and it kind of feels like very millennial sort of thing where it's like I have to have a random job I this job seems like more fun than other jobs I could get like maybe I'll just do this thing at these bar mitzvahs in my hometown while I'm like living with my parents and uh, talking to this girl I knew in high school and um you know she's a kid and um it's just like a sort of sweet story uh that has some unexpected depths to it while also being very funny so um cha-cha real smooth is a great little movie and it's coming out on your apple tv plus nice cool alex what have you been watching so on june 1st nationwide uh there is an encore of RRR or triple R. Oh, no. of, wow. I couldn't I couldn't tell if our internet was lagging or if you were a pirate or Yeah, I, I didn't become a pirate just there. I was trying to simulate the multiple R's in Encore. Oh my god. So RRR or Triple R, I don't know how you say it, is a movie from Tollywood, which is like South Indian Bollywood. Um and it has become like a cult hit suddenly. Uh, I know about it because of Patrick Willems, who's been spreading the triple mm-hmm. R gospel on Twitter for many weeks or months now, just saying this is the most awesome movie ever. Everybody has to go see it. So I went and saw it on this encore screening, and it was such a fun time. It's three hours long with an intermission, and it is just pure, like, earnest entertainment from start to finish but in the most like gonzo insane way it's a period piece so like 1920s india but it also has like the most like zack snydery like john wick action in it but in the period setting and there's an insane amazing bollywood dance number in the middle and it's just got the most like it's very sweet, but also incredibly violent other times. And it's just really, really fun and like big hearted and unashamed of itself. You know, like, I don't know, there's just something about it. Like, I think, Trisha, you said recently on uh, the My Favorite Movie Is podcast about Jurassic Park. Uh, like there, there are movies that we used to make that weren't like embarrassed for being movies and weren't apologizing for being like a blockbuster or just being entertainment. And this feels like we get, we get like this import from another country of just like, we are just making the biggest, most entertaining like movie that has ever movied possible. And we are loving it and we are not ashamed of it. Please share in it with us. Anyway, this is all of me saying they are now playing RRR over and over again in theaters because it was such a success that night. So in multiple theaters in LA, I think it's playing like every night now. Uh, if you can see it in the theater with a big audience, 
is I, I can guarantee it's entertaining. Like, I don't know what else you'll feel about it, but like you will be entertained. And if you're with an audience that is there for like the cult love of it, that is also part of the experience. And yeah, it is a good time no matter what. Uh, triple R, RRR, go see Sounds it. Nice. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Michael, what have you been watching? Yeah, I watched season four of Stranger Things, and I will not get into any spoilers except to say that I very much enjoyed it. I very much look forward to its return uh, for the final two episodes uh, very soon. And I'm very impressed by the uh, filmmaking and how hard they are executing their vision this season. I feel like they, regardless of what you, you feel about it, uh, I think they're really going for it and it feels like a very well thought out arc and season and I very much am appreciating that. So whereas I had kind of cooled on Stranger Things a little bit, I'm now pretty hardcore into like more Stranger Things right now. I want them more. Uh, yeah, so Stranger Things season four. If you haven't heard of it, it's on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good show. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, so this has been our conversation about Goodfellas. Before we uh, leave, again, want to mention that our episode on Jurassic World Dominion is available for all patrons today. So head over, let us know what you want us to talk <laughs> about in Thor Ragnarok, and also listen to us share our thoughts on Jurassic World Dominion. As we're recording this, we haven't seen it, so I don't know what that episode is going to be like, um, but I'm sure it's going to be fun. Kind of like RRR, it sounds like. I think it'll be entertaining. Uh, <laughs> but to... will Jurassic World be the the greatest movie of the year and maybe of the decade? Is the, is the real question. <laughs> I guess question. we'll find out. Yeah. The question. Yeah. yeah. The answers are waiting for you over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. <laughs> We're all going together, sitting in the same room in the theaters. So it's going to be it's going to be an experience. Indeed. But yes, we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes, uh, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. We want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayoros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we'll see you in the next episode for our discussion of Thor Ragnarok. Bye, everybody. Go home and get your shine box. Bye. <laughs>